0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose podcast. For more sermons and content, visit sojournmontrose.org. So all of us here uh, this morning, if, if we're honest, right, we, we've experienced some level of familial brokenness, right? And some of us even um, may, may come from a, a, a really broken background and in, in a broken and a dysfunctional family that as we start getting to know someone, um, and in our friendship with them, as we share stories, um, we, we may preface some, some, some things and say, well, you know, my, my family is really dysfunctional, so, and then you, you continue to tell the story, right? And, and it's as if at that moment we, we forget or we somehow believe in that moment that um, my family is really broken and dysfunctional. But somewhere out there in the world, there's, a, there's some families that don't experience dysfunction or brokenness. But this morning, my, my hope is, is not simply to show that um, one of the families that was the most important, if not the most important, in terms of David, Bathsheba, and the son that they would eventually have in Solomon, um, showing that not only were they dysfunctional, but they were birthed out of intense and deep brokenness. And my hope this morning is that as we do see that and find encouragement, that we would also see ourselves reflected in this story of David and Bathsheba, both in our sinfulness as well as in our wounds. And I pray that as the Spirit applies this text to our hearts this morning, that, that we can all see and experience the, the lavish grace that God has, the abundant mercy for sinners, as well as those who have been sinned against. So let's get started. In in the context, as I've already uh, alluded to, we're we're in a portion of Scripture this morning where we we find David comfortable. We find him lounging, even idle. And in the previous chapters, most immediately chapter 9 and chapter 10, we read of a faithful, strong, selfless, fierce, and godly king. A man going out to battle with his enemies, against his enemies, defeating Israel's enemies, extending honor to others, inviting Mephibosheth, right as we heard last week, to his table to dine with him and to return to him the inheritance that belonged to Saul and how that was a picture of God and Christ inviting us to sit and dine with him. David being used mightily by God to display and point to Christ, the the coming and eternal King. And up to this point, we've seen this, this faithful King in David. This is why, particularly, this description of David in the first couple of verses in chapter 11 fill us with so much angst because... I don't know if you've ever, uh, well, the last time some of you watched a thriller, but you're in the movie theater, similar to this, right? <laughs> um, and you're in the movie theater and you're watching this movie and you see someone who's walking straight towards the killer or whoever is about to cause them great harm. And it's as, you, it's as if you scream to the, to the screen and say, don't go there, run away. But we find David, as we'll see in this uh, chapter, in a similar situation, the difference, though, is that now we're not yelling at David, run away from outside danger, but instead we're, it's as if we're saying to him, run away from the danger and the evil that lies within you. So this is the kind of scene that we read in the first two verses. It says that in the spring of the year, a time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, And later on it says, David remained in Jerusalem. Then it happened, the situation with Bathsheba, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. So in in verse 1 we find that this took place during the spring, a particular time when kings were known to go out to battle with their armies. But what do we find David doing here? What do we find him doing here we find him lounging, as I said. We find him staying in Jerusalem. We find him disengaged from the battle that his army was engaged in. And instead of going out to battle, leading his people, which was part of his kingly duty, he stayed in the comforts of his own palace. Now, why did he do this? We, we need to ask, what, what was the reason for this? Was, was there a good reason for David to stay behind in the comforts of his palace? And the reality is that there is no good reason found. The reality is that we see a king that, older in years, fought many battles. God has shown him great favor. Every battle that he's gone into, God gives him the victory. You can almost read between the lines here a sense of entitlement, a sense of comfort, a sense of confidence that says, hey, I... I can can sit this one out. I can stay on my couch. I've done a lot for the Lord. So I know this is my kingly duty to go out with uh, the armies of the Lord and fight against our enemies, but I've done so much, I owe it to myself to stay in for this particular battle. And so while that that might not be blatant sin, He was already placing himself in a situation that was potentially compromising, right? And then in the text in verse 2, it says that David uh, gets off his couch. So this tells us, again, comfortable, idle, bored probably. He gets up and says, let me go up to my roof. And we don't know the intentions behind his heart. The, The Scripture doesn't tell us that. But we do know that he went up there, maybe out of curiosity, like I said, maybe out of boredom. He goes up to his roof which is when he finds Bathsheba bathing. Or, or at least his eyes glance around as he is on the rooftop that is probably the highest in the city and finds Bathsheba bathing. Now something that um, we see here is that as David was on the rooftop, he saw her, but, but the scripture never says that Bathsheba was on the rooftop. And I realized as I was studying for this text, I don't know where I've heard it, but I, I somehow imagined or, or figured, well, she must be on a, another rooftop as well in broad daylight bathing naked. No, that, that wasn't happening. It was late afternoon, the sun was coming down, which is according to the law, the time where um, a woman should go and, and bathe for... Uh, ceremonial cleanliness so she was being discreet she wasn't putting herself out there hoping that someone would see her also you have to keep in mind that the men were out at war so this is a woman who was being discreet a woman who was not putting herself in a position where she knew someone might see her David taking advantage of his position, David taking advantage of the fact that he has had probably the the best view in the city, in his castle, gazes upon her, desires her. Now up to this point, David probably knew in some way who she was. So when when he sent his men to go figure out who is this woman, and he heard, is this not Bathsheba, the, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? David knew who Uriah was. He was one of David's best generals. And so it wasn't as if David, in the mind of David, Uriah was just a, a kind of a no-face, no-name husband of this woman that he was desiring. He knew Uriah pretty well. It adds to the seriousness of his his actions. We see here that the one in action is David. We see that David sent and inquired. David sent messengers and took her. He laid with her. And the only action that we see given to Bathsheba in this particular situation is when she sends word to David that after he takes her in, calls for her, and he lays with her. She sends word to David that she's pregnant. So if we could mentally go back to that place and place ourselves in the, in the, in the, in the, in the position of Bathsheba, a woman who at that time, right, because of the way women were viewed, was powerless. And you have the king summoning you. The one who has all authority and all power over you. Only to find that he's summoning you into his bedroom. In a very real way, brothers and sisters, we have David essentially raping Bathsheba. And when he finds out that Bathsheba is pregnant, instead of coming clean, Instead of repenting at that moment, instead of acknowledging his sin before the Lord, the sad reality is that the king that was once faithful continues to walk further into his unfaithfulness that was started first by idleness and being comfortable. So he falls deeper into sin by conspiring to bring Uriah back from the battlefront to try to 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 persuade him to go back home to lay with his wife so that he could wash his hands from this sin and say, well, that, that baby doesn't belong to anyone but Uriah, of course, because that's her husband. But we know that that's not, that's not how the story goes. We know that when Uriah came back, Uriah was a Hittite, a Gentile, a non-Jew. He was a Gentile convert to Judaism. And in, in great irony here, we find the king of Israel not only being unfaithful, but also trying to persuade Someone else to be unfaithful. See, for Uriah to have gone home to his wife and lay with her meant that he would have uh, placed himself in a position that uh, essentially prevented him from going back to battle. According to the law of Moses, during a time of war, a warrior, a soldier could not lay with his wife. He would be ceremonially unfit for battle. It says if David throws the law out the window and says, my purpose now is to cover and to conceal my sin. But in Uriah's faithfulness, the irony here is that he was so faithful to God and even to David that he disobeyed David. While David told him to go down to his house and be with his wife, Uriah says, how can I do such a thing when my people are out at battle? When they're sleeping in tents. How could I do that? God forbid me from doing that. So he never ends up going down to his house and being with his wife. So Then David has to, has to think on his, on his toes, right? He has to figure out another way to conceal his sin. And this is, brothers and sisters, no longer a, 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 a David or even a, just a human being struggling with sin or struggling with confession. Of his sin, David at this point is in a very dark place because Uriah didn't go down to his house and, and lay with his wife. David keeps him a couple of extra days, hoping to get him drunk and then send him off to Uriah, uh, to his home. And still, Uriah won't won't budge. So then David takes another dark and grim step and. Uh, conspiring to have Uriah essentially murdered. So whereas it started off as comfort and idleness, now we're talking uh, uh, premeditated murder. And the plan is successful, right? We read that. uh, Although some of David's other men also end up dying, David is... Satisfied in the fact that he's done away with Uriah. He was willing to cover up his sin at all costs. So whereas the king who was commanded to lead his people into battle, to protect, to use his power to protect his people, and even the most vulnerable of his people, we find him in this chapter using his power To satisfy his selfish desires, we find him using his power to even encourage others to break the law and using his power to cover up his sin. So we must must ask ourselves this morning here how did he get here? How did he get there? And what can we learn from this process that David went through? We now have a king, as I said, who who committed adultery by raping a powerless young woman who, by the way, was was the granddaughter of one of his friends and the wife of his best general. This is a man who we have come to know of as a man after God's own heart. How do we reconcile that with what we see him do here? This was a good man, a, a godly king, a godly leader. Well, it should teach us, brothers and sisters, that sin takes us to places that we never imagined we'd go. Rabbi Zacharias has this to say, and he puts it in this way. He says, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. We see this process in, in David's life in this chapter going from idle and comfortable Curious and bored, tempted by the lust of his eyes, acted, acting upon his lust, conspiring then to cover up his sin at all costs, which leads them even to murder. He's in great sin and up to this point, notice that we haven't heard much about what God thinks or how he feels about this, but we do find that answer at the end of this chapter. Verse 26 and 27 says this, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And listen, listen here, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. So while throughout this chapter, we see David the one acting, David the one conspiring, David the one trying to cover up his sin, the one in action, we then begin to see, beginning in these last couple of verses in chapter 11 and going on to chapter 12, God responding. I find it ironic that when the messenger came to David and told David what had taken place and that Uriah was dead, David, almost in a way trying to comfort the messenger, tells him, no, tell Joab to not be displeased about this. This is just part of war. People die. So while he's telling the messenger, tell Joab, don't be displeased about this. Even trying to lie to himself, we we find at the end of this chapter the reality, the truth, that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And so this tells us, brothers and sisters, that no matter how much we may try to minimize our own sin, even try to lie to ourselves, it doesn't change how God views sin. And it's foolish to think that somehow we can explain ourselves away or explain our guilt away. So we saw the Lord's response, displeasure for David's sin. We also see a response from Bathsheba here. We see that she she laments the loss of her husband when she finds out that Uriah has been killed out in battle. She laments. And nowhere in this text do we find any guilt attributed to her. She was a victim of rape and abuse on behalf of her king who held power over her. It's sad to to realize for myself as even I prepped and I saw some some different views on this chapter how, how much blame historically has been placed on Bathsheba as someone who is tempting David. But we find none of that in this passage of Scripture. We find none of that in Scripture altogether. We find that the Lord's response to David's sin is displeasure. And we find that Bathsheba... Her response is lament. So we, we come to the, to the end of this chapter with the realization of God's displeasure towards David. And some time passes, David, is, David must have thought, I, I've succeeded in covering up my sin. I've succeeded in, 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 in doing away with this but in God's ferocious grace, in God's grace who chases His children down that won't let us be comfortable in our sin. Brothers and sisters, God sends Nathan, the prophet, to David, and He he sends Nathan with this story that we just read about this poor man with a lamb that that cherished this lamb and, and a rich man, his neighbor, who who had everything he could ever want, every kind of animal he could ever want, and he has a guest over to entertain, but he doesn't want to kill any of his animals, and so he goes off and kills this little lamb that belonged to his neighbor. And David's infuriated, right? We, we get a sense of his anger, and he says that man deserves to die. And David is found out in that moment. Nathan, Nathan points to him. It's the climax of this passage here when he tells him, you are that man. And I want to I zone in here. I want to focus on David's response here. As, as serious as his sin was, as grievous as his sin was, when he was called out by Nathan, but really by God using Nathan. David's response was, I have sinned against the Lord. And I see here God bringing him to repentance, God bringing him to such a low place where he he no longer tried to defend himself, he no longer tried to cover up his sin, but he openly confessed, I have sinned against the Lord. And notice how Nathan didn't, didn't wait to pronounce forgiveness over him. Nathan didn't wait to, to see him wallow and fall on his knees and try to beg for forgiveness. But the moment that he repented, the moment that he had a broken and a contrite heart, Nathan pronounced forgiveness over him. But we see that David still had to face some of the consequences for his sin. But regardless of those consequences, we know that there's a deep repentance in David. And we've read that text during worship through song. It's found in Psalm 51. In God's great wisdom, somehow, brothers and sisters, God used this dark and grim period in the history of the reign of King David to bring to us the psalm that most clearly explains and and shows us and teaches us what repentance looks like. I know most of us here, if, you, if you're a Christian, have read Psalm 51 many times. But, but if you would, you would allow me, I, I want to read Psalm 51 for us with this in mind. This story, the detail of everything that David did, everything he conspired to do, and abusing his power, using his power to cover his sin, even if it meant that his men would die. So Nathan calls him out, he repents before the Lord and he says this, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in a secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities create in me a clean heart O god and renew a right spirit within me cast me not away from your presence and take not your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good. Pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and on whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. David's repentance here was pleasing in the sight of God. And when David is called a man after God's own heart. One of the biggest reasons why he's called a man after God's own heart is because he knew the hard work of repentance. He knew what God required in repentance, which is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. A heart who stops justifying themselves. A heart who stops trying to defend themselves. In light of the accusation that the Spirit brings to our hearts. So we find in David a model of repentance. Yet as I stated earlier, Nathan doesn't say you're free to go and period. He does say you will not die. Your sins have been forgiven. God has done away with your judgment that you deserve. However, you still will suffer some consequences. And so because of that, his house, Rathan says, would be in turmoil. But more than that, he would lose the child that Bathsheba was carrying that that was his. And and here we find a glimpse of of the gospel, uh, though blurry as it might be, we see that David deserved Death under the law for his adultery and his murder, brothers and sisters. God spares him from that. He repents. He doesn't receive the punishment he deserves, but God does tell him that his son would die. So David is cleared of his sins, and instead of him dying, the son of David dies. And for us, this could not be more true, right? Whereas when we look at our own life and when we look at our own heart, though we may not have gone to the extremes that David did, Jesus reminds us in the Gospels that sin begins in the heart. That if we hate our brother in our heart, we're guilty of murder. That if we lust in the heart, we're guilty of adultery. Why does Jesus say that? He says that because that's the origin of of the sins that we eventually act out. So we all can take our place with David as, as sinners. And say I deserve judgment. I'm the one that deserves to be stoned according to the law. I'm the one that deserves punishment for my sins. But because the son of David died. I don't have to die. And yes I may experience some brokenness. I may experience consequences for my sin. But I shall not die because there was one who died in my place the son of david that would come jesus the messiah would come and bear and take all of our shame all of our guilt all of our judgment that we deserve and place it on himself on the cross so in some way or another brothers and sisters we're all david in this story whereas before we've seen him be a shadow of christ in his sin we can see that we can very much relate to Him. And some of you here, brothers and sisters, are deeply broken over your sin. No one needs to remind you to be broken of your sin. If you're like me, you struggle more with thinking about all your failures than on the grace of Christ. And here you find overwhelming amounts of mercy and of grace towards you in that place. You find an unending well of grace to continue to rise when you fall. But then, with, with a room this large, there may be some of you here who haven't felt the conviction of the Spirit in a while. And, and, and listen to me here, brothers and sisters. I say this with, with trembling, knowing that I also am a weak man. But some of us here, if we have not felt the conviction of the Spirit in a while, maybe, maybe, maybe it's not that. Maybe we say, I'll, I'll never do something like David. I could never cheat on my wife. I could never go off and do this gross and ungodly sin. And I believe that through this text, the Spirit wants to remind us, if we think in that way, We've already taken the first step towards this kind of sin. And the Lord, I believe, wants to remind us of His grace in waking us up through His Spirit. Paul says in the New Testament, take no part "...in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you." Then he goes on to say, "...look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, check this out here, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So while Nathan was used by God, to go and call out David and his sin. In a very similar way, brothers and sisters, today, the Spirit many times is that Nathan coming to us and calling us out in our sin. But because we are unaware at times of our sin, and even blind to it, God uses the grace of community. God uses your parish. When you may be walking in a way that is not wise, maybe in idleness or in comfort, right? Right? And God uses the grace of community to be a Nathan to us and to come to us and say, brother or sister, I'm concerned because of this. What a grace of God that he doesn't leave us to our own devices. What a grace of God that he when He sees us walk towards a path that could lead to destruction, sends not only the Spirit, but then sends warm bodies, our brothers and sisters, who love us to say, no, don't go in that direction. Come back to where the light is. Come back to grace. And in God's pursuit, brothers and sisters, of us, even when we're stubbornly trying to seek out our own sin, the grace of God is always gentle. The grace of God always comes and restores and uplifts and brings back and yes, produces repentance and brokenness, but only so that there may be healing and restoration of joy and of peace. So this means we submit to each other in our parishes out of reverence for Christ. And as, and as we finish, I, I want to ask this question as well. What about Bathsheba? We've talked a lot about David's sin. We've talked a lot about how we can take our place next to David as sinners. But what about Bathsheba? God in His his loving care for her would allow David to take her up as his wife so she would not be abandoned to a life of being marginalized. She would probably have ended up homeless or out of desperate need into a life of prostitution a woman who is now known to have been adulterated and whose husband had been killed out in battle would have been left destitute and forsaken but instead God favors her tremendously and grants her to become the mother of the great Solomon who would go on to build the temple of the Lord but but more than that brothers and sisters Bathsheba is also given a mention in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1.6, we see her mentioned, then Jesse the father of David the king, and then it says, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And notice how it doesn't say David's wife. That says the, 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 Matthew, when he pens this, reminds the Jewish reader Hey, Jesus has skeletons in his genealogical closet too. That can be a comfort to us who may feel that we come from a lineage that's too broken. That Jesus willfully and purposefully came through a lineage littered with brokenness, littered with family dysfunction. And we know that Bathsheba's abuse became public knowledge so much so that it's in the scriptures and we're reading it This morning. So this tells us something. And I want want to bring it down to um, street level today, 2018. Having her abuse being brought to the light allowed her to heal. Yes, we've talked about us being sinners. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that many of us in this room today have been sinned against. And out of shame, out of guilt, have not allowed ourselves to be brought into the light to begin a process of healing and restoration for our souls. See, in many ways we are David, but we are also Bathsheba in this story. We've all suffered wounds, and some of us have suffered the specific kind of wounds that Bathsheba experiences here in being sexually abused. And I, I too am, am one of them. I too was a victim of sexual abuse in my early life. And coming into the light and expressing this with community, walking a long road of, of, of restoration, of healing, being in the light in this has brought much healing, much restoration, much power that hiding it could not have done. Hiding only brought shame. So I encourage you this morning, if you have a similar experience, to step into trusted community with your brothers and sisters and begin that journey towards healing. We know that God does meet us as the sinners that we are in need of forgiveness, in need of restoration from our guilt. But brothers and sisters, there's also an unending well of grace for restoration and healing from sins that have been committed against us. So what is, what is the ultimate application that we can leave with this morning here as we close, brothers and sisters? It's simple. Step into the light. Step into the light. Whether it be out of a need to attack your sin in community with trusted brothers, trusted sisters, to gain victory over our sin, confession of our sin, or whether it be the, the, the tough but, but also powerful journey towards restoration of sins that have been committed against us. We know that we find in Jesus an unending well of grace for restoration no matter how far back in our life or in our family's life, this brokenness extends. Let's pray. God of all comfort, we come before you knowing that you are a gracious God, knowing that you don't leave us to ourselves and don't leave us to our own devices. If we belong to you, then you call out to us by your spirit and through community. And we know also, Father, that, that throughout Scripture, you are the advocate for those who have been taken advantage of, and you have grace, the grace that brings healing and care and love for those who have been sinned again. So, so this morning, we ask you, Father, that you would meet us where we're at, that you would meet us in our sin with unending grace for restoration, and you would meet us with Grace for our need of healing from sins committed against us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.